My name is uh, Bensin Suratskin. I'm a clinical psychologist. And we're going to be speaking today about parent power. There was something that I read in the New York Times a few days ago that uh, I think... I show it? Okay. Uh, I read something very interesting about something that goes on in the U.S. Army. It says there that uh, the usual attrition rate in basic training is 30%. And that was 30% of the soldiers or the recruits that come to for basic training drop out within the first two weeks. Until recently, the army didn't really care because they had plenty of other recruits. So, you know, why bother? They drop out, they drop out. More recently, because of the booming economy, it's difficult to get recruits. So now, they can't so easily forego these people. So now they decided to take a different approach, what they called insist and insist and assist in other words they still insist on the same standards they can't lower their standards but now instead of the person can't hack it or is having difficulty in the first few weeks instead of just throwing them out they assist them they try to figure out what the problem is why this particular thing they found out that many of the soldiers have problems with some of the activities require walking is because they all wear sneakers now nobody wears shoes anymore so that's like for some reason that affects their ability to hike and by putting certain inserts in the shoes, they're able to help them deal with this problem. So we see that when you really need somebody, you find that person mates and you find a way in order to help them make it. Something in industry, when, uh, when, when the, the economy is booming, it's hard to find enough workers. They discovered you can hire handicapped workers or people who never finished high school. And if you train them sufficiently and you invest a little bit in them, you can get them to, to be very good workers. Certainly, I think our children could be uh, certainly qualified for that, for that category of somebody that we can't give up on. And therefore, it behooves us to try to find every which way to try not to give up on them. The question is, what are the roles of the parent in this struggle? It would seem to be kind of a silly question, because obviously, if not the parent, then whom? And who is the one in the front line if not the parent? Yet somehow, I think it seems very often to parents that they are simply persona non grata in the struggle. That they're just, that they're, they're left out. Very often, these young teens, the last ones they want to speak to are their parents. And very often, I think also professionals, in their effort to help the, 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 the child, and since the child very often is in conflict to the parent, very often the subtle message to the parent is, sometimes not so subtle, listen, you just stay out of the way. You know, you messed up with him, or you don't have a good relationship with him, so you stay out of the picture, you know, let us professionals handle it. Needless to say, this has a very terrible effect. You know, parent makes the parent feel angry, frustrated, resentful, guilty, and so on. On the other hand, when one tries to get the parents involved and perhaps look into what might be some of the factors in the family relationships and the relationships between the parent and child, both before the problems crept to, came to the surface and both during the times of problems. Uh, so when, when this happens, uh, when we do try to focus on the parental, parental part in the picture, then very often the term parent bashing comes up. I believe one of the professionals who presented yesterday um, used that term. Right? So the question is, so when in fact one does discuss with parents maybe their part in the problem or what it is perhaps that in the relationship between the parent and child that may have helped create the problem 
So then very often, people feel that they're being bashed. Now some therapists have tried, in order to avoid this problem, try to take a no-fault approach, just like insurance is no-fault insurance, right? So they try to take a no-fault approach. And I think the slogan they use is, you weren't part of the problem, but you're part of the solution. I think the trouble, it does finesse the issue, and it probably be good for a politician. I'm not too sure how, much, how well it works in real life. And I'll tell you why. By the way, how many people read this handout? I don't know if I have just repeating things that I've already, most people haven't yet. Okay, so I'll, uh, I don't know if everybody got it, because I don't know if they had enough issues. If anybody didn't, you can come after to... Yeah, well, I, I don't blame you. I barely had enough time to think about what I'm going to say, so <laughs> I know. Very little time. Okay. Um, so the problem with this approach, of the, non, the no-fault approach, is as follows. First of all, it makes the assumption that somebody has to be at fault. I don't know. I had a Rebbe once that um, had an expression, the Revolution Daphnish Secretary. You know, and as somebody would say, he's at fault for this, or he's at fault, I don't know whose fault, he'd always say, that's not our big, the doesn't need secretaries to help him figure out who's at fault. You know, our, our job is to deal with the problem and try to find the solutions. So I think the whole idea of bringing up the issue of parent bashing, or, or to bring up the issue of whose fault it is, I, I, don't, I don't see what the relevance is. I mean, what are, there's nothing we're going to do about it anyways. I mean, we would try to figure out what the problem is and try to find a solution. Now, what happens is when, it's, when, when, when you want to say it's nobody's fault or, or nobody did anything, it just happened, then how in the world do you figure out the solution if you don't know the problem? You know, when I, when I see youngsters in therapy and, you know, after they want to have a solution in the first session, I said, how can I give you a solution if I don't know you yet? I need to get some time to know you and understand what the problem is in order to give you a solution. And many of them have been in many treatments before and I'm not sure why this wasn't clear to them yet. Some of them are going to try to solve the problem without understanding where it came from. Or, or, you know, all the causes. And I had a very interesting experience. It's the only time this ever happened to me. A few weeks ago it happened, a, a lady came to me to speak about her son who had been acting out. And so I started asking her, what I always do is, what do you think may have contributed to the causing, to the creation of this problem? She said, well, she spoke to a few professionals, and one doctor suggested that perhaps it's a chemical imbalance. Very, uh popular word today. So I said to her, uh, now it was interesting because she had already described to me family events and, and, and dynamics that pretty much I thought explained it. I didn't know why she had to come up with that explanation. But of course I didn't want her to feel, I do try to be gentle and sympathetic. And I said, well, you know, I'm not really so sure if that's the cause. I think there might be some other reasons. And she stops me in mid-sentence and goes, doctor, you don't understand. I don't want it to be a chemical imbalance. If it's a chemical imbalance, what am I supposed to do about it? If it's something that I did, I can change it. You know, I thought that was a very refreshing attitude. Now, my own understanding of the problem, I didn't come into this, when I first started working years ago with this problem, I didn't come with a preconceived notion that I know what the problem is. I came in pretty open-minded. And, of course, in the beginning when I met these kids and their parents, it was very heartbreaking. It was heartbreaking, the, the pain of the parents, which is more obvious, and the pain of the children, which is less obvious because it's, it's, it's uh, covered with, with layers and layers of bravado and denial. But once you got through to the surface, you felt the pain. But it was even a stronger feeling to me than the pain was, was the perplexity. It didn't make any sense. I couldn't understand how this can happen. 
And the reason why I couldn't understand, not that I couldn't understand why some kids have conflict with their parents and that the relationship can deteriorate. It didn't make sense to me why it would be worth it for a child to go off the derech. The price is so amazingly high, it just doesn't make sense. Because people give explanation, you know, it's the Yait Sahara. Right? That's the line you use. The kid has a big Yait Sahara. So first of all, I think to myself, Mamanashach. If the parent really thinks, or if the teacher really thinks it's because of the big age, he was born with such a big age to her, why are we so mad at him? You know, it's his fault he was born. Imagine if a kid, Rahman al was born without hand. You have time to think why I didn't put on film. So I go to, you know, why are we upset at him? Somehow the, the, the logic only worked as far as blaming him. It didn't work to get him off the hook. And second of all, even the age to her, Cheshvin didn't, didn't make too much sense. But believe it or not, I also have Shaykh's the age to her, so I know a little bit about it. Not just professionally. And I'm thinking to myself, one minute. I thought of an example. You know, imagine a father, as you see somebody by a fire, and he's standing near a fire, and the fire is getting closer and closer to him, and he's starting to turn red, and he's starting to blister, you know, and his clothes are catching a fire, and two people are watching, he's not moving, he's just standing there. So one guy says to one observer says to the other, I wonder why he's not moving. What did I say? I don't know, he must be lazy. Is that what we say about these kids when they don't wake up, they stay in bed till 12 and the 2, but they're lazy. Is this an explanation why he's not moving from the fire? That doesn't make any sense. You could say maybe he's in shock, you know, or some other explanation, but to say that he's lazy? Even the Yitzhah would argue for moving, right? So same thing when a child, you know, if you take an adult who normally goes to davening in the morning, he goes to dafyaymi, and now he's on vacation, he's in Florida. And you know, he's on vacation, so he skips to dafyaymi, wakes up late, davens late, and you'll say it's because he's lazy, because he didn't learn enough Musa, I would 100% agree. But when you have adults in Marshall who have for various emotional reasons cannot hold a job and every job they have they lose because they can't get there before 12. You're going to say because he's lazy? It makes absolutely no sense. There has to be some psychological problem. Uh, nobody's that, even laziness would argue for getting out of bed because he's not going to make any money now and he's, not going, to, he's going to be arguing away and have all kinds of problems. So it didn't make sense to me to say it's because of the it's a her that these youngsters will go off the derech. Another point is we assume the line that Lowe's uses that these children having a good time. In fact, even one of the young men who were brave enough to speak to us, and I certainly admire him for that, but the line he used, how do you say it exactly? The reason why I do because I want to have a good time. You know, he probably actually thinks that's true, because I don't know how much insight, I don't know the person from Adam, so I don't know, you know, what insight he has into his own behaviors. But, you know, that doesn't make too much sense either, because none of these kids are having a good time. You know, they're trying desperately to have a good time, but they're not succeeding. They're all being tortured. You know, maybe two generations ago, when there was no Yiddish guy, people went to public school, it was very hard to hold on to these kids, because they were, you were fighting the system. All their friends were not religious, they, they didn't have a religious education, you know, the parents were looked at as some freaks from the old country. So of course, you had to work very hard to keep them in the fold, and those parents who succeeded, Mamish Tzadikim, Gaiman, that they figured out some way to keep their kids there. But today it's exactly the opposite. The vast majority of these kids grow up in an environment where everybody's from. They are looked at as the freaks. They are looked at the loyutzlachs, the failures. So what kind of Yetzirah is there? I don't see where the Yetzirah has a standing there b'chlau. You know, Ramat Yisrael Salman, once I once spoke to him about this thing, he told me, yeah, I always say they should be called pushed out, not, not dropouts. You know, and it's academic because... It, it, the whole system is working and keeping him there. There has to be some terrible pain or void, like the young man that spoke the other day, right? There has to be some in- terrible, incredible, painful void that would push a child to the point that he would want to go off the derrick. So this is something that always mystified me when I was working with these kids when I first started. 
I couldn't understand what could possibly motivate a kid. Now, usually, so I start asking them about their family relationships, and they all tell me, wonderful, wouldn't you, family relationships? <laughs> cool, me and my parents are tight like this. Well, I'm really more mystified. You grew up in a yeshiva, all your friends are from, everything is wonderful, at this shtimpnish over here. This is something's not right, something doesn't add up. Like, so what, what, what happened? And they also give, well, I'm lazy, I'm stupid, you know, I had bad friends. I can't be watched up after your bad friends. Why were you so pulled to it? And because of my, I had this terrible urgent need to make sense of this, because I find it very difficult to help people if I don't understand what the problem is. Other people doesn't seem to be a problem, but I don't know, that's the way I am. I like to understand what the problem is. So I would start asking more questions. And I'll tell you, like recently, about two years ago, I, I had, so usually what used to happen is after a while I'd find out that the things are not exactly the way the person painted it. Because usually something would slip out, a comment or, or an antidote or something, and then, you know, all of a sudden, oh, wait, wait, that's not what you said, you know, that's not really what you've been saying till now, or this doesn't fit into the picture that you've been saying. And this is a recent case where I finally found, I thought I finally found a kid where this actually happened to. I spoke to a young man who had gone off to Derek, and really, unlike the usual stereotype situation, the parents seemed to be handling it beautifully. You know, they weren't pressuring him. They, they, they were really very accepting and unconditional love. And I said, oh my gosh, this is really, I, I, this is the first time I've actually seen him in real life. And I knew this fellow for about four months, five months. He was very open and very verbal, very articulate. I said, Baruch Hashem, I found something, you know, it's always an intellectual challenge to find something that sort of flies in the face of what you believe because it makes you think things over again. So just as I was getting all excited about this new intellectual challenge, but I kept on still asking, so explain to you, like, why do you, he was like one of the top guys in the yeshiva, he was like, like, the Bain loved him, he had like everything going for him. So finally, he says to me, after about four months, he says to me, he saw that I was tremendously trying to understand what's going on. So I guess he had Rachmanus on me. <laughs> he says to me, uh, well, I guess maybe I should tell you something I haven't told any of my previous therapists. I says, it might be helpful because I'm really clueless here trying to understand what's going on. So he tells me something, I don't want to get into too many pratim for various reasons, but he told me about something that happened. His parents found out something that he had done or had been doing for quite a long time that's a very serious matter that I think any parent would immediately have gone to a professional. And he told me that his parents yelled at him, his mother called him some of the most vilest names, and then, asked, and then didn't speak to him for a week, and that's it, it was never dealt with again. This happened a few years before I got to meet the fellow. And I had met the parents before I met this young man, and they had didn't say a word about it. You know, anyways, so then that opened up a whole new vista, because I understood that things were not as rosy as he was making it, and all of a sudden he reminds himself that, that a year or two ago, he once was extremely angry at his parents, and he wrote in this long, long letter all about his anger. This is something, he, it was so blocked from his memory that he's telling me a whole different story. He says he thinks he knows where it is. He thinks it's his parents leave it in the, the bottom drawer. So he went and got the letter. One page was conveniently missing. I always wonder what was written on that page. But he, he, he reads me this story full of anger about so many things that he was so angry. And it's interesting because it was more of like, similar to what the young man said, it was more of a question of a void rather than being abus abusive to him. They, they weren't abusive to him, but I think they were totally disconnected from his emotional life and he was in incredible pain. So over time, I came to the conclusion, right, that what drives, I say this somewhat boldly, although with some trepidation, because I, I always know what I'm accused of afterwards, so I'll try to uh, do damage control afterwards, right, that what drives the negative behavior of rebellious teens is the anger and hurt resulting from the serious deficiencies in parent-child relationships.
And I think that most often, not always, but again, one thing I want to say, that if anybody knows a situation, if anybody themselves has a situation, or knows of a situation, which does not follow, does not fit into what I'm saying, then obviously we're not talking about the same thing, so there's no reason to get upset. I'm just talking about what I noticed from my experience. Okay, so uh, when I think that the major feature in the majority of cases of what rules the parent-child relationship, the derechal is criticism. I personally feel that criticism is the poison of our generation. Now, being that I wasn't around in previous generations and there's not very much good scientific documentation, I can't tell you for sure there was much different. But I think maybe perhaps in previous generation they were so worried about more elementary things, anybody who's familiar with Maslow's hierarchy of needs, might know what I'm talking about, but you know, when you're, when you're starving for food, you don't have that much energy to be worrying about if your kid got an olive in a bechina or not. So it could be today, Baruch Hashem, because of the Shefa that the Rebbe Hashem has blessed us with, could be we have a n- more time to, to get overly involved in our children's uh, lives down to micromanagement. And I think because of that, what's happened is that more and more kids feel that they are a disappointment to their parents. I don't mean that they did a particular act which disappointed their parents. You know, that's a perfectly legitimate thing. But as, as human beings, they are a disappointment to their parents. Now, we may be shocked. Many parents, who are, when, when I do ascertain that that's true, when I speak to children who tell me this, sometimes the parents are shocked. Me? He thinks, I, this, what are you talking about? He's such a nice kid. But as parents, I think all of us suffer from this problem. We have no idea how often we criticize our children. You know, they've done some experiments where they tape parents, videotape parents in the house interacting with their children over a period of a few days. You know, after a while, the parent forgets they're being videotaped. And, you know, when they play it back to the parents, the parents are absolutely shocked how critical they are without even realizing it. What do I do with my watch? Oh, okay. Um, Okay, back to the issue of parent bashing. You know... It seems to me, this is very similar, and I draw an analogy to what, what when parents claim that a kid is chutzpah Most of the parents who have conflict with their children, one of the issues that comes up very often is the kid being chutzpah One thing that bothers me a great deal is that there's no differentiation between what the child is saying and how he's saying it. Now, the mere fact, in my opinion, I'm not saying halacha here, so you can, you can check with your local rabbi, but I'm saying I just seems a piseichon from what, what I do know in halacha, that what, you know, chutzpah should be how you speak to your parents. Expressing your feelings to your parents should not be considered chutzpah. I must tell you a frightening story that happened to me. It, must have, it was within the last month. It was scary. Although I've seen, I thought I've seen everything, but still, it really shook me up. I'm sitting to a, talking to a parents, a, a husband and wife were having some problems with their kid. It was the first time I met them. And I'm trying to explain to them what's shot in having an emotional relationship with your child. To some people, it seems to be a mysterious concept. And I'm trying to explain to him, give him some, you know, practical suggestions. So I gave him a marshal. I said, listen, if, if, if you had a good emotional relationship with your child, so if he did something wrong, something that he felt guilty about, he would come and talk to you about it to get your advice and some help and support. So the mother looks at me and says, like I said, it's like the weirdest thing. She goes, what? If the kid had any better hurts for his parents, he wouldn't want to burden him with this information. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not exaggerating here. Mom is the Maisha Shahoya. She couldn't understand what kind of child who had a shtukul kibbutz avayim would burden their parent with something that would be wrong because the parent was going to be upset. So she, I said, I, I thought I didn't hear that. I said, I mean, you would want the, your child to keep it to the, if your child did something wrong, 
you'd rather they keep it to themselves rather than discuss it with you so you can help them deal with it? Yeah, of course. That's not, that's not kibbutz avayim. Okay? So people have different strange definitions of chutzpah. And I try to tell the kids I work with, I try to encourage them to be more open with their parents, to be assertive with their parents, to demand their rights, but in a way that you remain feeling like a mensch. And I tell the kids, the reason not to yell at your parents is not only because of kibbutz avayim, it's because then you're not behaving like a mensch and you won't look at yourself as a mensch. But if you, if you speak to your parents and you speak to them openly and tell them what you feel and talk about some things that they do that hurt you, and you say it like a mensch, and they accuse you of chutzpah, do not accept it, because it's not true, that's not chutzpah. You know, if you tell your parents you're stupid because you did this and this, that's chutzpah. But if you say, when you say that, I feel very hurt, I don't see by what definition you can call that chutzpah. Same thing with parent bashing. I don't understand. If, you know, if a person is a heavy smoker and somehow he, he's been living in a cave and doesn't know that smoking is hazardous to his health, and you break the news to him that smoking is not healthy, I mean, you call that bashing, you know, smoke, smoker's bashing. You're doing the person a favor, trying to, to, to save him from a problem. You know, they, they had a, 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 if you remember from last year, they had that Atzala poster. You know, they, they had a picture of a, of a car accident and a picture of a teen. It says, uh, behind every uh, teen fatality, car fatality, is a parent who said yes. First of all, I disagree with the whole poster, and we'll talk about that a little later, but, but many people claim it makes parents feel bad. You know, they asked a few G'dayim, and the G'dayim said, listen, you know, if it's going to prevent people, <laughs> you know, from, from making this mistake and having never their children get killed, then, you know, uh, that's, that's the Ikazah. So I, I, I personally feel the same thing. I have no interest in bashing anybody, children or parents. I just think that if people want the situation to get better, one has to speak the truth in the nicest way. Okay, clearly I'm not discussing motivation. I, I think in the years that I've been seeing, I, must, I don't know how many youngsters and the parents I've seen, I've lost count, but I can tell you, I can think maybe of one parent who purposely hurt their child, and she was an extremely disturbed person, it would be obvious to everybody. Most of the parents I speak to are perfectly normal, nice people, each one with their own hang-ups that we all have, and, uh, you know, and basically, either they're doing it inadvertently because of their misperceptions about chinuch, or because of their own emotional needs they're not aware of and that's also subconscious it's not something that they consciously do to hurt their children so you know I, I don't think there's really this is an indictment of anybody I think it's our task to try to understand ourselves better so we can deal with the problem and a lot of this stuff is so subconscious that nobody can expect the person to do anything about it until they realize what it is I remember there was a few years ago I was speaking to this person the father was a mechanech but there was something terrible going on between him and his teenager and his teenage boy developed a serious problem with homosexuality and other things and I remember one time one of the big issues that they fought about one of these major world events is they wouldn't want to wear a, a, a jacket by the Shabbos table this was a cause of incredible conflict so one time I spoke to the father and I said listen, you, know, you seem like a reasonable person you're, you're certainly an Elohim more than that and you certainly love your son so just for my curiosity because this is so puzzling to me can you please explain to me like you know what are you doing like what are you thinking so he says to me so he thinks about it I don't think he's ever really thought about this and he thinks about it for a moment he says you don't understand my mother or mother-in-law which one I don't remember let's say it's his mother I, I might be mixed up he says you know my mother eats by our Shabbos table I thought I missed something I said like yeah yeah <laughs> so what he says, no, no, you don't understand. She would never, she would be like upset at, she would be very upset at me if he didn't wear his jacket. 
Ah, yes, okay, now I know what we're talking about. Okay, so I said, listen, so basically what you're doing, I said, I know you didn't do this b'machshavah, but bottom line, what you're doing is you're sacrificing your son in order to please your mother. Keep it, keep it, hey, I said, but you know, again, I'm not a halachic authority, but I think you'll check out, I don't think this is what keep it, is all about. Especially, it's not going to be a big cover to your mother when your son goes off the derech. So I think if you look down the road a little bit, I think the biggest cover you can do is tell your mother that she should butt out or stay home. You can say it a little nicer, but, you know, the general idea. Now, when we talk about, you know, parent deficiencies in the parent-child relationship, I want to make it clear, we're talking about a wide range of, of problems. Yes? I want to tell you. Yeah. Excellent question. Oh, yeah, no, 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 no. Yeah. I think he's a I want to tell you. I, I had more. <laughs> I want to tell you. No, no, you're right. I mean, the question is you're asking is how do we know that the mother in fact would say something? I'll tell you why. Because I, because I tell you how I know. First of all, I want to tell you the bedelch klal. When people talk about their families, they're very hesitant. Contrary to popular belief, people do not like to bash their families. Kids will swear to me. Uh, like I mentioned this before, but I, mean, I had another kid that the Rebbe who sent it to was a Rebbe in Eretz Israel that was very close to this Bacher, really put his whole neshama in trying to save this Bacher. And this Rebbe told me that this kid has a home situation that's more horrible than anything he's ever heard. And he was at everything because he works a lot with these kids, uh, tire year, the tire neshama. And he said, this is the worst example here. The kid walks in, sits down, sits down. I said to him, yeah, I said, ask him about the various problems he had. He had a certain very strong addiction problem and other problems. And I asked him, so I asked him a bit about his home life. He says, I have a pretty good home life. I said, yeah, but you know, relationships at home. And they say, yeah, things are good. I, I'm sure he believed himself. That's just he was trying to lie to me. It, it was only because I heard from the Rebbe, I realized, you know, first of all, I would have known from his symptoms that it's not likely to be true, but I'd already heard from his Rebbe. So, so as I'm saying, usually people do under-report these type of things. Maybe with their friends when they're joking about mother-in-laws, you know, obviously it's a whole different ballgame, but I'm saying, you know, when they're talking to professional, but they're kind of... In, particular, in this particular case, I already heard from the kid many horror stories about what goes on, so I had other sources. But, you know, certainly you have to be careful not to jump to conclusions. Usually, we don't assume anything is true until you hear it from different sources, or, as I'm going to say, the MS made a lot Sometimes it just all fits in together, and, you know, from experience. Um... Oh, so what I'm saying is, so this person simply had no idea what was motivating him, that he was sacrificing his son to please his mother. Okay, and I thought once I brought it to his consciousness, I would like to say things changed, but actually they didn't in that particular case, unfortunately. Um, okay, so what I'll say is that when we talk about, when we talk about deficiencies in a parent-child relationship, we're, we're covering a wide range of, 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 of deficiencies, as in anything else in human nature. There are parents who are overtly abusive to their children, uh, both physically and otherwise. There are parents who say the most horrible, I mean, I, I, some of the things that I've heard that parents said to kids. Uh, and it's not like, again, you ask the question, how do I know the kids are saying the truth? Because I know because for two years they lied and said everything was wonderful, so I finally got them to open up. So I assume they're saying the truth. And sometimes the parents tell me what they said without batting an eyelash. I remember I was once, I was once talking to a Hasisha lady about the problem she was having with her daughter. And she was just sort of just verbatim recounting an argument they had and she said something she told her daughter that would make a sailor blush. I didn't even know she knew the word. I mean, she barely spoke English, but she knew this word. 
and I almost fell off my chair. I sure my heel is at a hundred percent, so I was sure that I must have misheard. I, I go, uh, "You said what?" She goes, "Yeah, she was big." And you wonder why she blew up? Oh, you think she may have been upset? I was like the pella. So yeah, I was questioning maybe she talked didn't know what the word meant. Right? Well, she didn't speak English that well. No, she knew. Okay, now very often it's not so bad. Obviously, most people are you know pretty reasonable people who do things like that. Although in anger. I think we all hush it and doing such things and you know we have to learn how to deal with that but many times it's not that many times like the young very articulate gentleman that spoke the other day he spoke about the void and he said you know he has loving parents who were very nice to him but it was a void the void comes it's hard for us to imagine how a void can be so painful it seems to be the absence of something and it's more painful than hot lead it's something terrible and I, you know it took me a few years of practice till I begin to understand the depth of that pain because like he himself said, I thought it was very interesting, he said that now that he's past that, you know, it's hard for him even to, he has a memory of it, he doesn't actually remember it. So, the pain of feeling that you're not connected to your parents, even though you might have a decent relationship, but you don't have an emotional relationship with them, is a tremendous pain, and especially true between boys and, fa- between boys and their fathers, because, you know, somehow the popular belief of men are not supposed to have anything to do with emotions. Okay, now, one of the major systemic you see, when, when things go wrong in a relationship, what we need to remember, especially with young children who are building their personality, is that the problem is not just the discomfort they have from that moment. That's why it's so hard for people to understand why psychologists have to get so involved in the person's past life. The guy's living now in the year 2000. Let's what do we have to hack in China? What happened in 1990? What's the relevance? Let's talk about the future. We don't live in the past. But that would be like somebody having a building where they're developing cracks in the walls and they called in an engineer and he says he wants to see the blueprints because he wants to see how they built the foundation. You say, well, how to make China with a foundation? I have a wall here that's cracked. What do you bother with the foundation? And same thing, the child's foundation is created in his childhood. And when a child is either abused or neglected or not emotionally tuned into, then there develops a systemic problem. The problem with low self-esteem is not just because things and we, when we think about our kids having low self-esteem we say such takes away doesn't have so why he has low self-esteem because he's failing in school because he wakes up at two in the afternoon hasn't done anything useful when we think about our kids having low self-esteem we say such takes away doesn't have so why he has low self-esteem because he's failing in school because he wakes up at two in the afternoon hasn't done anything useful in the last two years so for states that's right if we beat him over the head and get him to back like a man he'll have self-esteem however it was that easy the reason he doesn't have self-esteem is something that happened a long time ago. He really doesn't like himself. He systemically looks at himself in a negative way. And I can prove it to you. How many people here know people who are on the outside look like the most successful people in the world, that they are, that they are articulate, they're good-looking, they, they, they can talk up a storm, they, have a million, they seem to have a million friends, and they, they're very successful in their careers, and they have absolutely no self-esteem. You know anybody like that? How, how, how could such a thing happen? In fact, I overheard somebody speaking about the young man that spoke then. They can't believe he had a void in his life. I mean, he is so bright and he's so articulate, he's charming. And I guess somebody who actually knew him personally said he seems to have been so successful. How could that be? That's how it could be. It could be because the foundation is not there. You can pile success upon success. And if, the, if he's missing at the core level self-esteem, well, does health in the type of bankers. It doesn't help. In fact, I was recently met with a Rebbe and his Talmud. The Talmud had not wanted to come to therapy, refused, and he, but he agreed to come with his Rebbe. And the Rebbe told me that he himself is a little bit hesitant for the need for therapy because he himself, he's a, he's a patient's therapist. In fact, he's the most wonderful, wonderful, accepting, supportive person. So there wasn't any therapist for. 
I explained to him this, you say, that what he's doing, he's building success in the present. I said, you've been doing that for a year, he's no, no less depressed than he was before. And you yourself said he has a terrible problem with self-esteem. But if he's been doing well for a year, why does he have the problem? I said, because you and your capacity as a Rebbe cannot deal with the foundation. You don't have the time, the training, or, 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 you know, that's not what you're trying to do. You're trying to build a yid over here. I'm trying to fix the foundation. So he accepted that. Now, one of the systemic problems in parent-child relationships, and I think this is a source of much of our conflict with, with our children, is many of us, I believe, do not see ourselves as components in the child's reactions. As we see ourselves as victims of... Uh, you know, of what's ha- let me give you an example, maybe it'll make it a little clear. This happened to me, Meister Shahaya. Many years ago, I was looking for an office. At that time, I was in Board Park. So I needed office space. So a lady wanted to rent me her basement. So this lady, so she tells me that there's somebody living there right now, but she wants to get rid of him because he's a slob and the place keeps the place a mess and so on and so forth. So she walks in with me, and um, the guy's there. And the place is taka a mess. And she's walking around with me and she's going, see, what a slob. I told you guys a slob. It's terrible. Look, mom is like a chaya and this and that. And he's standing there and he's like, I- I'm beginning to see that the fire is building up, you know. And he didn't have to be a therapist to, to see it. Like you can see the you know, smoke was starting to come out of his ear. And she's oblivious to completely. Has no clue. He's standing right there. And she's carrying on. He's a slob. I want to get rid of him. Da, 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 da. Finally, the guy, the guy, I mean, it was also, she knew that he had emotional problems too, you know, to boot. So whatever it is a normal person would react to, he's like double. So finally after, uh, you know, at some point she said something very nasty and, and that said he blew up. He starts screaming and cursing. She tells, turns to me and says, I'm a sugar now. <laughs> okay, now a lot of people are not that extreme about it. But I think that a lot of times when we complain, you know, sometimes parents, I've worked with parents who've worked with me very closely, who really and sincerely tried to change you know, and try to do things with the kids. And, you know, and I admire them for that because it's a difficult job. But sometimes they'll tell me something. They'll say, oh, you know, the other day we had another argument. It wasn't as bad as it used to be. I caught myself before. I really got nasty. You know, they're making an effort. But, like, I don't know why I got so mad. Let me tell you what happened. Just, you know, we were, we, were, uh, we were talking about what is he going to do next, you know, next year and maybe she get a job, you know. And I said... Uh, well, I don't know if you know what kind of job you can get because you always wake up so late, and that, you know, you know, and then, then he blew up. I don't know what happened. I was just talking to him. You know, I, as soon as I heard him say, "And you always wake up so late," I already, you know, I don't know. Hey, of course he's going to blow up. But again, it's not, it's not an overtly nasty thing to say. And I'm just saying the facts. You know, when I called to their attention to say, "Well, I know that's a Matthias. I said, "But that does, you know, just because you're saying it for his good doesn't change the fact that he experiences it a criticism." I think once we begin to look at ourselves. I must tell you, it's not only parents. Therapists had the same machla until very recently. There used to be a term in therapy, in psychoanalysis, they used to call it a negative therapeutic reaction. An incredible term. What that meant was like this. The therapist did everything exactly right, and for some odd reason, the, the, the patient had a negative reaction. that You said something wrong or didn't understand the thing properly. It was all the patient's fault. Till just mamish, not too many years. It always struck me as being a very odd way to looking at things. But just till re- recently, some therapists have begun from one of the fields of psychoanalysis called self psychology. Came up and decided, no, that's nistama, not what's happening. Right? That most likely, and again, doesn't mean the therapist did something bad. He may have not understood or had enough time to learn to understand this patient well enough. But the bottom line is, he said the wrong thing. And if he looks at it that way, he might discover what it is. So I think if as parents. We look at ourselves as being players in the interaction. 
and that there's a give and take here, I think we'll avoid a lot of mistakes. I have rather an interesting, there's a young lady that I'm retreating probably for 10 years. She grew up in a Gehenna. Uh, the, mo- the, mother, the, the, the father has been in and out of psychiatric hospitals with serious psychiatric illnesses. There was, there was violent fights in the home. The, the mother is a violent person. The, 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 when she was young, she wasn't from when she was young, but the, the judge a few times almost took her out of the house because of the troubles that were going on there. Anyway, she's going, and now Baruch Hashem, she you know, got her act together. There was some Rebbe in the seminary she went to. His mamash Malach. He mamash saved her life. He raised money, paid her for her to go to college. He married her off. I mean, it's like Philip playing where she came from. But one thing I know is now that she has her own children, she has uh, three young children, I see Nebuch that she's doing the same thing. It's like, you know, she's missing so much at her core that with all the therapy, I mean, when I st- started with therapy, it was like, 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 it was like uh, among the most difficult experiences. She, she would get angry at the, you know, sometimes it took me three months to figure out that she was angry because she'd hide it. Then it took me another three months to figure out what she was angry about. It was some word that I said the wrong way or something. But one thing I notice now is with her child, she's having difficulty with one of her children, and it's obvious that she's mishandling it. Again, to no time, it's not at all a time on her. She never, she's never saw what a normal parent does. And unfortunately, she's not getting much help from her in-laws too, for other reasons, but whatever. It's Rachmanus on her, but she's not able to see that she has anything to do with it. And whenever I try to bring it up in the most gentlest way possible, she has no clue what I'm talking about. Right? So she'll just say, she just, oh, that's what the Bainshim did, gave her a bad child. That's, this is the new one. We're not part of the, of the equation. We don't see ourselves. It's very difficult to change. There was another... Fe- I remember there was once a Misa that a lady was telling me she, they were having very, a great deal of difficulty with one of their... Well, a few of their kids, actually. And she told me that her husband, who sees himself... He's like a big Tamachachim and sees himself as being very from... A big Eved Hashem. She tells me... And she knows, she says, my husband is one of the most critical people in the world. And it's no wonder because his father is the same way. He says, he's so extremely critical, I see him destroying my son in front of my eyes. She says, but he, the way he sees it, he doesn't have anything to do with the problem. In fact, he says that he has a terrible problem in Amunah. Because he doesn't understand how somebody like himself, who spends his whole day in Avayas Hashem, that the Rebbein Shem should punish him like this and send him one troubled child after another. Right? And it's very sad because, you know, he's a good man. I met the father. He's a, he's a very wonderful person. But, I, you know, he doesn't see himself as having anything to do with the situation. Now, what does it mean to be sensitive to a child, to develop an emotional relationship? I saw once a beautiful story that I think highlights what it means when you're tuned into your child's emotions. So be- I, I think I read it in Reader's Digest, but I don't really, I don't have the Marmachimus. But, you know, it was a beautiful story. I, cause I, it showed a sensitivity. This fellow's writing, he's a writer, I think, for them. He's one of the writers. He says, when he was a kid, um, he remembers his parents were extremely poor. Mamish didn't have a penny. And there was many conversations around the table. The father and mother would be hunching over the bills, trying to figure out how they're going to pay this bill, how they're going to pay that bill. And every once in a while, when things really looked tough, the mother would say, you know, if things really get bad, we're going to have to take the money out of, you know, if we're really sure, we're going to have to take money out of the savings account. Okay. This went on for years. Years later, when his mother retired and moved to Florida, and they were closing up her affairs, so the son says, you know, what about the account in the bank? You know, maybe you want to close it and move your funds to Florida. She goes, money in the bank? I never in my life had money in the bank. So what do you mean? You always were talking about the savings account that you have in the bank. She starts laughing. She says, listen, 
I knew we were very poor, and there was always a lot of pressure of finances. And we always, you know, it was hard. We lived in a very tiny house. We couldn't talk about it in private. And we knew that it could cause you a tremendous amount of anxiety to know how poor we were. So we made up this fictitious money in the bank so that you should always feel that really things are not really as bad as they sound. You know, they just don't want to take the money out of the bank. This is an echtekitog, a money in the bank. We never had two pennies to rub together. So I thought it was such a gewaltige Musa Haskell. Uh, what it means that a parent, even in the midst of their, they lived under tremendous pressure just to have the foresight to think of what, what it might affect a child. I saw something similar. Revolver writes in a cipher, Zero Binyum Bechinach, when a child asks, Where is Hashem? Right? So you tell the child, Hashem is everywhere. He says, But don't say he's even here in the room with us. Because that's too frightening to a child to think the Rebbein Shem is looking over his shoulder. Again, it's a sensitivity to realize that what we say, what impact it has on a child. I think it's interesting, the ones who most directly work with children, usually the Mechantchim, I think are the ones who most clearly see the connection. This article there of Brofman from uh, Farakway, I think, right? He, uh, writes, he wrote in 1977, he wrote about the crisis in the Jewish family, right? And he writes, you know, lack of communication, growing hostility between parents and children. And he writes there, this is in 1977, the fundamental needs not being met in all these situations are those of understanding, respect, and all too often the patience of parents toward children. Every child needs to be loved by his parents and most important to be accepted for what he is. This seems to be such a simple solution, yet how often this is overlooked. He mailed me this because I always also thought there is a simple solution, but we do overlook it. And if we listen, I'm sorry? Rabbi Aaron Brofman, right. If we would have taken his advice in 1977, I think we would uh, save ourselves a lot of aggravation. Now, you may think that everything I'm telling you is from, you know, these super liberal psychologists, you know, what do they say? They're so open-minded as their brains fall out. So let me read you something from a book that somebody wrote to parents. I'd like you all to guess who wrote this. Anybody who read my article, please don't call out. You're not eligible for the prize. Okay? This is, listen to this quote. Tell me who you think wrote this or what type of person wrote it. I agree with the educator. This was written, Aga, from a speech that was given, you know, it was written toward mothers, so don't, mothers don't get insulted. It includes fathers too, but I'm quoting it verbatim, so he wrote about mothers. I agree with the educator who said that a child constructs his picture of the world through the experience he has had with his mother. According to whether the mother is loving or unloving, the child will feel that the world is loving or unloving. When he is not, lo- when he is not loved, he fails to learn love. Such children grow up to be people who find it extremely difficult to understand the meaning of love. This is what we call like systemic damage. Show me the hardened criminal, the juvenile delinquent, the psychopath, and he is almost, in almost every case I will show you a person resorting to desperate means to attract the emotional warmth and attention he failed to get, but so much wants and needs. Aggressive behavior, when fully understood, is in fact nothing but love frustrated. It is a te- technique for compelling love, as well as a means for taking revenge on a society that has let the person down, leaving him disillusioned, deserted, and dehumanized. The best way to approach aggressive behavior in children is not by aggressive behavior toward them, but with love. If you find rebels in society today, it is because they were never given proper love. Would you imagine we've written such a thing? Okay, right. Well, that would be one possibility. Uh, But, you know... I guess some of us might guess Sigmund Freud, right, or some super liberal, modern liberal. Did you? Okay, you guys are close. It's with Pinchas Scheinberg or Shiva Neretzisrael. Okay? So this is just not modern psychological theories. 
And let me tell you something. I think when he writes proper love, I get a little bit bothered when we talk about that the children need love. Even some of the boys themselves spoke about love. I think that's a little bit difficult to understand. Because, I don't know, have you ever met a parent who doesn't love their child? I can't admit, I don't think any parent I know, even the ones who have the most difficult relation with their child, who wouldn't give their life for their child. Right? So, I don't know, it doesn't seem to be love that's missing. I mean, I think it's something a bunch of... Whatever. You know, I got her to be honest with herself in their relationship. She tells me, well, now that you put it that way, I guess I'd say that I love my child dearly, but I don't like him. You know? And I understand where she's come from. She's had a tremendous difficult life and a lot of difficulties with him, so she doesn't like him. So I said to her, okay, I have no tightness on you. I know you've gone through a lot, and she herself, they got divorced, and she, you know, she had all kinds of problems in life. I said, just one thing. If you don't like him, why do you expect him to call you every, 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 every Arab Shabbos? It's enough that you know that things didn't work out, so at least give him that much. He doesn't have to call you Arab Shabbos. Would you want to call somebody who doesn't like you every Arab Shabbos? So that much at least don't have tightness on him. Okay, now the rebelliousness against Yiddishkeit, I spoke about this a little bit yesterday, whoever was at the father's group, so maybe I won't repeat it uh, here. Briefly, okay, whoever, right. Oh, it's okay. I want to say, you know, to, to, to our, our perception, you want to do the air conditioning? You're more than welcome here. <laughs> um... The child's, we don't have a musik of the Rebbein Shalom. It's beyond our comprehension. Therefore, our musik of the Rebbein Shalom is images that we're familiar with, avinu makeinu. So the father is the image of the Rebbein Shalom to the child. If the father is unreasonably harsh, demanding, difficult to please, then it's no, not, it's, it shouldn't be hard to understand why the child also feels that way about the Rebbein Shalom. And therefore, the child will become, feel that the Rebbein Shalom is very unforgiving, and nothing he does is good enough. And if he does a lulave or even something that's normal for kids to do, he feels like he's the worst person in the world. In fact, I've written quite a few articles about children who become perfectionistic because of that reason. Afterwards, anybody is welcome to take a copy. I think I have enough. Uh, so that's, you know, the image of the Rebbein Therefore, many of the kids who have problems with the Rebbein because they feel the Rebbein is so unforgiving, because maybe perhaps their parents were very unforgiving when the child made... I mean, I think many of us are guilty of this. You know, if a child, uh, I've heard kids, many kids, here, like, you have a bacher, go see Shiva, he's a pretty decent bacher, he learns pretty decently, comes home, Ben is mine, he doesn't want to go to shul, right, in the morning. So he doesn't, he's not going to, maybe the only minion they have in his place is 6.30, 6.30 minion. He doesn't want to go to a 6.30 minion. So he doesn't go, he wakes up late, goes to a late minion. Could be the father, maybe he doesn't have time to learn very much, his whole Yiddishkeit is in davening, he runs like a good yid to davening every morning, goes to a 6.30 minion, maybe he goes to a shir. To hurt the father, okay, this is, a, this is my yeshiva bacher. I'm paying through my nose tuition for it to go to yeshiva. He doesn't come home, he doesn't go to davening. So he tells the kid, you know, your, your learning is worth nothing if you don't go to davening. Is that something to tell a kid? You know, so that's not his learning. You know what? He'll do his father a favor, he'll stop learning also. Right? So I think we have to be very careful not to, you know, to have a sense of balance when we talk to our children, even things they don't do well, See, when a person becomes a perfectionist, even when they get better, and this, when, when I work with children, even the ones who I manage with Siata de Shemaya to make a connection with them, and I see progress, the biggest obstacle to, to curing them is that they don't see it as progress. Any step they take, they only see what they haven't taken. It is so frustrating. I, look, I'm so proud of them because they've done something, they've taken a step, they've improved. You know, instead of waking up three in the afternoon, they got up at 12. And I'm, I'm like, I'm, I'm all excited about it. We go, 12. 
Normal people get up at 7. What is 12? That's nothing. I say, yeah, yeah, but you usually get up at 4. So 12 is a big improvement. Where's the source? You want to know where the source is? Actually, this is interesting. This is the same person that had the story with uh, wearing the jacket by the Shabbos table. He had another Misa. Just remind myself that he had a very hard time getting up in the morning. He was kind of depressed. So, you know, he'd get up late. His father used to get very, very angry at him for missing davening Betzibar. So one day, he gets, he happened to wake up very early. He moves, he goes back to sleep. That's it for davening. So he decided to be a good boy. He gets up, he goes to shul. It was Hanukkah time, and he davened at six in the morning. It's a bit early. Right? So he goes to daven. He comes back very proud of himself. His father sees him coming. He says, where are you coming from? He says, I came from davening. I was in shul. His father says, what? What time did you daven? He goes, six. Six o'clock minion. Six o'clock minion? That's too early. He says, well, there's a bunch of people there davening. He was a minion. He says, no, that's for the Balabatim, the Shiva Bacha davening six o'clock in the morning. That was the last time he woke up early for a year. Right? And, you know, it sounds funny to us, but I think, I think if we're all honest with ourselves, I think we're all guilty about that ourselves, at least at some time. So, if that's a person's Muslim Dibajan, what is a young man supposed to do when he sees himself as being a chayta, as being a bad boy, doing bad things? And there's no way he's going to get better overnight. So, what does he do in the meantime? What keeps him going? What motivates him to take the next step if every step, he's, every step of progress is experienced as failure? And I tell this to the kids. I'm very open with him about it. I say, see, the way you think, I says, you can't get better. I says, because getting better is such a difficult, difficult task. And you, it's going to be a long road. And if you're not going to feel happy with yourself until you get to the end of the road, I said, you can just forget about it because you're not going to get there. One last point, then we'll open it for questions. You know, much, when people talk about this problem, one of the very uh, common, uh, shall we say, uh, one of the aspects of our lives that we attribute this problem to is outside influences. We've all heard about the internet and television and or the Western society, the decadent Western society, and so on and so forth. Of course, there's nothing, nothing good to say about any of those things, so you know, I'm certainly not coming to defend any of them. And certainly, if we think about our level of ruchnius, it certainly behooves us to have as little to do with those things as possible. But I personally, and perhaps I differ with some other people on this, I don't think it has anything to do with this problem. Other than once a boy goes off the derech, obviously he has a wide variety of things to interest himself with, and you know, many of them are extremely damaging. But I don't think it's the cause of the problem. And I think I have a very clear raya that's not, that's not the cause of this particular problem. It's the cause of other problems, but not this one. And I think the raya is, because the fee this the fee if we follow this line of reasoning, then there should be many, many more people going off the derech in the more modern communities which are more exposed to these than in the more insular communities where they're not. And as someone who has worked a lot with people in the insular communities, I don't believe that to be true, and I would challenge anyone to try to tell me that there's less people going off the derech in, don't want to mention any particular places, but in the more insular places as there is in the more open places. So I find that highly unlikely to be true. I think it's all inside the person. The kids who are unhappy with themselves, who are disapproving of themselves, who feel that they are failures, are walking dynamite. They're walking time bombs. You know, I often tell kids, when they open up a little bit and tell me about themselves, in fact, telling me all the terrible, they like, they like to sort of impress me. They so I try to shock me about all the terrible things they do. And usually, at some point I tell them they're really boring me. Because I always tell them, listen, if you're unhappy, there's nothing you can tell me that you did that would surprise me. If you're happy and you told me you did even one of these little things, I'd be shocked. But being that I realize how terribly unhappy you are and what pain you feel, you know, don't, don't try to bother shocking me because nothing you can tell me will shock me. I try to help them focus on their unhappiness rather than on their bad behavior. And I think we tend to be somewhat superficial with these things, just, or maybe I'll tell you about the Hatzalah thing, 
you know, one of my problems with that Hatzalah poster, and of course there's obviously nothing against Hatzalah, it's one of the most wonderful organizations we have, but this particular aspect, that poster of most teen fatalities are from parents who said no. They said yes. That's very simplistic and superficial. You might say by definition, how did he get the car? Although I suspect many of these fatalities where guys either stole the car or the keys or what have you. Right? So, I would say, if I was writing the poster, I would say most teen most fatalities, most teens involved in accidents uh, have some parents who said no way too often. Okay? I think that's much more accurate. Okay? So, because those are the kids, when they do get the car, usually drive like maniacs to get out their frustration and anger. Right? The kids whose parents say yes, again, this is not to argue that kids who are, you know, 16 should be driving around the mountains. I'm not taking a stand on that at all. That's not the issue. I'm just saying the problem, if I, was, I would suspect the ruba the ruba of the kids who get into these situations are driving like maniacs because the parents said no too often, not yes. Okay, let's open this to questions. Yes. Foundation. Okay, the foundation is... Yes. How do you help a child build a foundation? By being supportive and approving, right? Not, not being critical. You can take these rubber bands off. Right? To, to be... Uh, to be a, to, you know, to show the child, even when he's misbehaving, that not only you love him, because, you know, like I said, all parents love him, but you're accepting of him. You're accepting him of the way he is. You know, unconditional love... Everybody talks about unconditional love like a mantra you have to have unconditional love I always thought about it it's a little bit strange how can you have unconditional love for an 18 year old who's robbing banks right I mean it's a little bit absurd right and it bothered me for a long time because I'm supposed to believe in it too but I wasn't sure how it worked right so then it struck me like this if you give a young child unconditional love that's very easy infants get unconditional love from everybody every infant is brilliant handsome you know he certainly can't talk back whatever not only can't talk back whatever he says is brilliant Right? What happens is as a child grows older, we have higher expectations. And sometimes they're unreasonable. We expect children to do things that they're not capable of doing. Revolva writes that to expect a young child to sit at a Shabbos table through the meal is a totally unreasonable expectation. Okay? So then the whole system breaks down because then we're unreasonably not accepting. If you have unconditional acceptance when a child is young, and as he gets older, you're reasonable, he can live up to our expectations. So we, but the trouble is, if it didn't happen, and now the kid is 18, and now he's full of problems, then you have no choice but to go back and treat him like he's a child. And then you have to have unconditional love, even though it doesn't really make that much sense, because he missed a stage in life. Yes? Okay, I, I, right, I, I was overstating the case a little bit. Now, as it comes to a certain point when there's a lot of conflict, and I think sometimes parents begin to hate their children. I'm saying that's usually not the beginning part of the problem. You understand? In other words, it, it very in the beginning, I'm saying when a child's born, parents, you know, the, 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 the problem is that usually the lack of love comes from the lack of acceptance. If a child feels his parents don't like him, he's going to start feeling love too. But the parent doesn't understand it because they feel they do love the, pair, the child because they would, do, they would give their lives for the child, usually. You see what I'm trying to say? In other words, um, the, the, in the, I was talking about the earlier stages. I said when the whole relationship deteriorates, it can come to hate also. I'm saying the problem in the beginning is not a lack of love. The problem in the beginning is usually a lack of acceptance. Yes? But the school I'm sorry for the schooling. Schooling is yeah. not really a child now, but you say a lot of times a child needs acceptance. Let's say it's a child that uh, he likes attention. 
you like to be accepted and always in class and always in the So it's going to kill us. I, I don't know why it's made so little. Okay, I'll, I'll I know there should be seminars in Mahatma too. Yeah, there are. Okay, I would answer that because the question is, you know, why I'm putting all the weight on this home and, and less on the school, and that seems to be a very important area too. If the kid has a hard time, maybe has a learning disability for whatever reason, you know, can only get 70s, and you know, maybe he doesn't feel accepted by the school because he doesn't do so well. Yes, the reason I'll tell you why I emphasize parents more, because I don't think a school in and of itself can cause a kid to go off the dare, in and of itself, because it would be a big part of the push. And I'll tell you why, because if you think about it, think about your own childhood. If we all think about our own childhood, did it ever hurt us as much when the teacher wasn't happy with us as much as when our parents weren't happy with us? Well, why is he a attention seeker? Why is he a attention seeker? Does God, yeah. I'm saying like this, if a kid is LD, if a kid has a learning disability, but he feels that his parents, this is what I tell parents of LD children, although it's not my specialty, you know, as far as actual LD, but one of the things I tell them is, your job is, you have to work double hard as any parent to show your kid you accept him exactly the way he is. I said, he's going to go to school, hopefully the schools have improved a little bit with this, but I'm sure, you know, it's still far from perfect, and he'll run into teachers who are nasty, mean, unsympathetic, hurtful, malicious, and as long as he feels that you're on his side, he'll be okay. He might not learn as much as he could have if he'd gone to a better school, or if he had better teachers, but he won't fall apart. And the minute he feels that you're disappointed in him, then forget about it. Yeah, what's in the back here, yeah? My son, yeah. He's a lucky son. Okay, one second. Let me, I, I was given the signal before. I'll be around here so you can ask me personally. But I just want to finish with one story. You know, uh, the fellow that told me, a young man, I was seeing a middle-aged man. For He had his own problems. He came in for therapy. And Agavuch, he told me a maestro like this. He told me that... Um, when he was a bacher learning in yeshiva he had a rosh yeshiva he didn't identify him it's irrelevant he had a rosh yeshiva who was ligging and learning that his whole life was taira every second of his life was learning his whole life you saw in this person that this is his whole life was taira every minute by him was precious like gold this, this rosh yeshiva had two, cho- two sons who were learning disabled so they did very poorly in school and this rosh yeshiva the kid tells me spent hours with these kids of course you're imagining you spend hours to do homework with them and learn with them and prepare them for the shia no no he spent hours with them taking walks and choosing about this and about that and about nothing hours and he tells me this young man is telling me when he was a bacher he could not understand it like how in the world could his Rosh Hashiva for whom every second is gold waste so much time schmoozing with his kids about nothing how? he really thought there was something wrong with his Rosh Hashiva like a man that values learning should waste so much time he says now that he's grown up and he still has a strong cashier with his Rosh Hashiva and he knows the boys and the boys of Hashem grew up in those days for sure they didn't help learning disabled kids in yeshiva however bad it is now it was twice as worse then he says they grew up to be fine gentlemen they left yeshiva they learned the trade they both worked they, they got married they support their families and the main, most important thing he tells me they have the most wonderful relationship with their parents he says now as an adult he finally understood what is what yeshiva was wasting time on thank you